0: Back to the Bins Hi everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins I'm Paul Spitaro and I'm joined by Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell And today we have a very special guest with us Val, I always say Mayorick, is that the pro- correct way to pronounce it?
1: Yeah, it is, just phonetically, the way it's spelled,
0: yeah. Okay. Artist Val Meyrick, who you may or may not be familiar with, but if you're not, it's your loss, because I consider Val to be one of the truly great artists in comic book work, and uh, as we're going to talk about today, he's done things beyond just comic books. Uh, and uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on with us.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: And I guess, you know, we, we were talking before uh, before we had a chance to get get you on with us, and uh, the first question of interest, I guess, for us would be, uh, before you actually started working in comics, were you a comic fan, or is that something you kind of just fell into?
1: Uh, a little bit of both. I was a fan, but I wasn't like a hardcore fan. Um, it was back in the when I began really getting serious about... Com- well, I read comics as a little kid, of course, um, but, you know, Uncle Scrooge comics and stuff, but I didn't be- start becoming a real, you know, major fan following books on a monthly basis until I was about 18 or 19, and I, I started reading The Silver Surfer um, when it first came out with Martin Marvel, and Marvel. Um, and then I, I got into... Um, the black and white comics, a lot. The Warren Publications, Creepy, Eerie, Vampirella. Um, I really got I really got hooked on those because I love the artwork. They had these, you know, those Spanish artists who were just, just terrific draftsmen, and I, I I really got into those.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that was about the extent of my fandom. I didn't even know that they had such things as comic book conventions at the time. It was 1972 when I first got into comics as, as, a, as a professional, and... At the time, I didn't even—it was news to me they, that they had conventions and that there was such an organized fandom um, as there was.
0: What was what was before that? What was your formal training?
1: Um, I didn't really have any formal training that's worth a damn. I, I was at, at the time I, I got into comics. I was I was um, attending a state college in Ohio, Youngstown State University, which has the, had the worst art art department probably on the planet, and um, <laughs> the. Um, the, the 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 professors are well wouldn't even I dare wouldn't, wouldn't even call them professors the, the so-called instructors were a bunch of failed beatnik painters who, who who couldn't really make it in the art world when they of course were teaching in the university and corrupting minds and <laughs> the, the trend back the trend back then was to was to do totally non-representational work um, you know just Hang a canvas on the wall, throw paint at it, and then and then and then come up with some bullshit theory about what it was supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And that was that was what my art art instruction consisted of at that time. I I had no use for it. I I only took a few art classes. I remained an art major, but I didn't. I, I just I just couldn't stand most most of the um, the classes. Some of the art history teachers were were. Um, I found value in some of the art history classes. Um, uh, because you know, it just obviously there was you, you could learn about aspects of eras, you know, and periods of, of history in which art took a certain, you know, had a certain place. And I and I had a, I found that to be interesting. But I spent most of my time in the in the theater department doing doing plays. Um, and when I when I got into comics, um, what was well, how that happened was it was just pure happenstance, pure serendipitous luck. I was in a painting class. Um, talking with a friend of mine who was into comics as well, another art student, and there was a woman there who was in her 30s, which to me at the time was an older woman. <laughs> and she she was finishing her degree so that she could get a, a job teaching um, art in, in, in elementary school. And she heard us talking about comics, and she said, you know, there's a guy that lives down in, in, in my town, which was East Liverpool, Ohio. His name's Dan Atkins. Have you ever heard of him? I said, yeah, he's an inker. She said, well, he works he for comics. You ought go down and talk to him. At which point I did because I had no other I had no other um, real opportunities presenting themselves for me at that point point. and um, I drove it was about a 50 mile drive down to East Liverpool Ohio and I met Dan and Dan if, if for you guys that don't know that much about Dan Dan was was a prolific inker at one point for Marvel and DC and he was he had been an assistant uh, and worked in Wally Wood studio for a couple quite a few years. And he came up in the 50s, in the, in the early, to mid 50s, and he came up with all the really great icons of of that golden age of comics, Al Williamson and Forzetta. and he he knew all those guys. He hung out with those guys, and but he happened to be back in East, East Liverpool, Ohio, because his family was was there. That's where he was from. And um, when I got down there, um, sitting right next to him, working as an assistant, was P. Craig Russell, um, who was from Southern Ohio as well. And Craig and I worked with Dan for about a summer, I guess it was. And then Dan called up, called up um, Roy Thomas and asked him if you know he could present samples of our work. And we did. Roy liked it, and of course that put us on cloud nine. And a couple of weeks later, Dan, Craig, and I took a Greyhound bus from East Liverpool, Ohio, to New York City and went to the Marvel offices and met everybody: Roy Thomas and Johnny Ramita, Sr. and uh, and Stan the man himself. And uh, and that was it. So it was just—it was, just, was just a lot of luck and a lot of right place, right time kind of a thing.
3: Now you did a fair amount of uh, of work with Adkins, didn't you? I know that one of your earliest works was was with him on uh, the Invisible Man story and supernatural thrillers. But you guys did a, a fair number of projects together, didn't you?
1: Yeah, Dan inked a lot of my stuff in the beginning because I didn't have. An inking technique that was really compatible with with comics at that time, because reproduction at that time, of course, was very, very primitive and very limited. It was printed on mm-hmm. very poor paper, and so Dan inked. Yeah, Dan did ink a lot of my stuff, and some of them actually. My first published job was um, a Barry Smith Conan job that Smith was late on, and, and just was sending very loose breakdowns to Dan to ink, and um, so if I forget the I forget the Conan. I forget the number of that job, but, but if you if you do dig it up you'll find it's me, Craig, Dan, Sal Busema and, and one other guy uh accredited with inking that job. Um and that was my first crack at um uh, at you know really getting getting something done that was that was gonna see print.
3: Are you actually credited on that story or is that one of those like many hands projects?
1: No, i I am credited. It, it's Inkers or Dan Atkins, Sal Busema Val Meyrick Craig P. Craig Russell and, and someone else that they had sent some pages they, they had just sent a handful of pages to a bunch of different guys because the job was so late right on um, Smith had gotten so late with it and you know so it was just them and so I think they intended for Dan to ink ink it all himself but Dan was incredibly slow in those days and uh, I, I I think he got permission from Roy to go ahead and and you know, incorporate us into the inking process.
0: How how would you describe yourself? You say Dan was slow. Would you, were you a fast worker or a slow worker? Cause to me, I look at your work and it looks to be very detailed. So I would think that would take time.
1: Uh, I do do detailed work from, you know, fairly depending on the job. Some, some jobs are more detailed than others, of course, but require more detail. I, I, I have been told I'm a fast worker. I have been told that I am one of the faster guys in the business. Um, I really don't know how fast people work now, especially. I mean, people are working digitally; they're doing all sorts of different things that I don't even know how you really even, you know, decide what time, how much time is put into something because you're 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 scanning things into the computer and you're doing things in Photoshop. I don't know how much drawing there actually is with, with some some of the artists today, but I know that back then, penciling a page a day was considered to be average speed. And depending on the story and depending on how I would lay out the, the panels and, and so forth, I could do three pages a day, no problem. Oh, wow. So that oh. that was considered fast. Um, I couldn't ink them now. I mean, I, I couldn't do three complete pages, don't get me wrong, but I could do I could pencil three pages. And they'd be fairly tight. They'd be tight enough that somebody else could look at them and ink them.
0: Do you, do you uh, prefer having other people ink your work, or do you prefer having the opportunity to ink your own?
1: Oh, the latter, always. I've, I've only had... Uh, I, I think I think I've only had one or well two possibly three inkers ink my work that I was satisfied with. I'm not an easy guy to ink. Um,
3: Do you mind dropping names on have,
1: that? Uh, as far as the people I was satisfied with. Yeah, uh, Joe Rubenstein, who's a who's a who's a very 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 skillful inker, was able to be faithful to my stuff. Um,
3: what did you two work on?
1: Uh, Oh, I can't remember, but I know that I know Joe has inked my stuff because I know I've looked at it and said, wow, Joe, that's really great. (laughs) um, um, A cover I did of one of the Frankenstein, the last Frankenstein monster story I did for Marvel, not the black and white Uh book, but the color book, Bernie Wrightson inked the cover for that. And that was a beautiful inking job. And it wasn't a Bernie, because Wrightson was very, very accurate with other people's pencils. He didn't. You know, that Wrightson style didn't manifest itself when he was um, inking other people. And he inked he exactly what I drew. I mean, it, it was perfect. Is and, that the uh,
3: Children of the Damned cover, the number 18? Yeah. You know, yes. all yes. my life I've seen that cover, and it's always reminded me of the Unmen issue of the original Swamp Thing. And that Which makes sense Bernie now Wright. that you <laughs> say that because that's Bernie Wrightson. Damn, I, well, thank you. You solved a mystery for me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, the other other inkers, I mean, I, I think I had it wasn't Alex Nino, but it was one of those Filipino guys that had a really strong style inked mm-hmm. inked one of my jobs, and it was very beautifully done. But it didn't look like my stuff at all because you know those guys, their style was so 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 pronounced that it pretty much overrode whoever they were penciling. Um, and I'm trying to think, I, I when I when I worked up at continuity. Uh, in New York with Neil Adams, I remember that I did a, I did a comic, uh, a seven page comic for the National Lampoon magazine and Russ Heath inked it. And Russ, of course, was a highly skillful inker as well and artist and Russ inked it beautifully. So, you know, know, so we're talking about some really, you know, top people that looked at my pencils and knew how, knew how to interpret them. Um, a lot of guys, they're real good with people that are very linear, very, there's an inker that I've worked with. I, I don't want to say his name right now, but he, he inked a Walt Simonson job uh, all about ten or twelve years ago. It was beautiful and Walt Simonson you know is, a, is an excellent draft and Walt has a very strong linear graphic style and this artist did beautifully on Walt and he did a job of mine that just it, it wasn't a bad job it was it was it was professionally acceptable, but it just didn't look like i just i just he just didn't see what I was doing um and that's just been, that's just the way it is with with a, with you know certain people they 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 they, they have an eye they you know they're they're skillful with their with their pen or their brush, but they don't have an eye for what you're actually trying to do mm. and um, it's it's frustrating and I everything I've worked on since I've gotten back into comics in the past couple of years got into comics full time I've inked myself I'm inking myself it's 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 um more work but far more satisfying and, and you know and you know so that that's pretty much where that stands.
0: As as we as we've been doing this show, uh, I think Scott and I have uh, particularly tried to, as we as we look at artwork in books, kind of separate the pencils from the inking, which is sometimes easier than others, right. and and I see that in a lot of cases there are certain inkers who do seem to impose their own style over the pencils that they're doing, and others that kind of let it you know let it breathe on its own, and uh, in in preparation for this, since you and I have been in contact with each other, I've been looking at, you know, some of your work, and I've looked at some of the work where you've done the inking over other people's pencils, and while your pencils seem to have a very distinctive style, that doesn't necessarily seem to dominate other people's pencils when you're inking it, and I'm wondering, you know, is that an accurate take on your work, or am I totally misreading everything?
1: No, no, back in the 80s, I was inking a lot of other people's work for Marvel, um, I was involved in other a bunch of other stuff at the time and I didn't want to be, I was kind of burned out from, from, you know, I didn't want to do storytelling. I didn't want to have to break things down and figure out all the, all the, you know, POVs and break down, you know, panel design and so forth. Um, for the, in the, on the pages. And, and I just, I forget who was it. it was at Marvel, but I was, it was editing there, but it was, I just asked them, you know, please send me stuff to ink, which they did. And, um, and I can't recall now who all I inked, but I, I I know I inked stuff for Marvel and for First and for uh, I think for Pacific Comics, and yeah, I mean I, I respect I just have re, I just I just have a lot of respect for you know what other people put down there, and I don't feel compelled at all to change it, nor nor do I feel that I should I should, and I and some people are just such great draftsmen themselves. I feel like boy, if I if I if I just trace what they're doing in ink, then I'll I'll become a better artist because I'll learn how to draw the way they draw. You know, I mean, I'll have an additional insight into, in, you know, in, into drawing. And um, so I've always felt it like it was really a, uh, you know, it, it was it was uh, a privilege in a sense to to ink a really good someone who draws really well, whose pencils are tight and who has a distinctive style. You know, then you as you as an artist can learn from these people. If you you know if you if you then. Go on to draw things later on yourself. So not even, it's not even necessarily an, uh, uh, an intentional thing. It's just kind of just by osmosis. You're you you're just dr- going over their lines, and so you essentially you're drawing lines like they're drawing lines, and, and that can't help but just integrate into your own into your own brain, and, and you know, and, and affect your own style.
0: And I would imagine that uh, you know you mentioned earlier Barry Smith giving some uh, loose pencils that. You know the tightness of the pencils would influence how much of your own style would come into the inking as well.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, when when we got that job, Dan Dan would um, type pencil some stuff. I would type pencil some of the muscles and on Conan and, the, and Dan would do the faces. And then Craig Craig at the time um, was still learning his anatomy. And and uh, although he certainly is a brilliant artist now, but we were we were all young and had our weaknesses at that point and. Um, Craig did all the backgrounds and all the all the, um, the decorative uh, elements of the story and all of the architectural rendering. So yeah, that was really a hodgepodge. It's amazing that it came out as well as as nicely as it did.
3: Well, you know, for me, uh, while um, I much prefer your your penciling work to your inking work, I, I hope you don't mind my saying that. I just I, I, I think the world of your pencil work. I, I think you're just a hell of an artist, and I, I really enjoy your stuff. Um, in preparation for this, I was kind of just going back and refreshing myself with your body of work, and uh, I ran across the ink jobs you did over Joe Staten on, I think it was Fallen Angels, and yeah, was re-impressed yeah, yeah. all over again on that, because I love Joe Staten. and But the guy didn't always get the best ink jobs, and I really liked your work uh, working on Staten. Did you, did you enjoy uh, inking his stuff?
1: Yeah, I couldn't think of his name when I was talking about this, referring to this, this uh stage er, earlier yeah i I liked this stuff it was everything was there everything was solid um he um he just was a good good comic book draftsman he he um knew how to spot blacks he didn't even he didn't even like you know render render in you know the, the dark spots the shading and stuff. he just would do a, a line and an area and then put an x on it, which meant that would be where the solid black was and and it just and when I inked it and inked it in solid black, it just it looked perfect i mean he knew just what he was doing um. Yeah, guys like Staken, they were they were just really great journeyman artists.
0: And anyone else that jumps out at you whose you know pencil work in particular was a pleasure to ink.
1: Uh a guy named Luke McDonald
0: who oh, yeah. I
2: think yeah. was
1: working for First. Yeah, his pencils were excellent. I mean, his pencils were so much fun to ink. Uh, he, he no great economy of line, no superfluous. Uh, rendering that, that I had to try to figure out or just erase all or anything. Um, the best guys are the people that really know what they're doing and, and you don't have to you don't have to reinterpret it. I also inked breakdowns of John Buscema, um in, in the early 90s on some Punisher stuff. And God, that was amazing. I mean, his even though they were just loose breakdowns um, that I had to kind of tighten up and ink, it just, I mean, Buscema truly was a master. I mean, every, again, economy of line, uh, complete confidence in where, you know, where the character should be positioned and how, um, great storytelling, um, the lines were clear, there was nothing, uh, nothing you know, foggy or fudgy that you had to figure out, oh, is that a shadow, or is that something else, or, you know, how are these wrinkles in this clothing uh, were supposed to be? He just really had it all down. Um, and it was just amazing, you know, to to, you know, be working over these these Sema pencils and just looking at them and thinking, wow, you know, this this because at the time that I got it, I was, I was really becoming a fan of, of Marvel back in like 68, 69. He was the one that was penciling all the Silver Surfer stuff, and I thought, and his stuff, that stuff was just brilliant. I mean, it was just, the, the storytelling was great, the layouts of the page were great, the anatomy of, of, of the figures was amazing. Um, so, you know, being able to work on him
0: was terrific. Yeah, he's, he's famous for uh, doing beautiful superhero work, but always letting it be known that he preferred the non-superhero work over the superhero stuff, <clears throat> in particular Conan. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I look yeah, over your and, body of work, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. But yeah, yeah, oh yeah,
1: right, because the stuff I worked on with him was Punisher, and uh, yeah, that was great stuff.
0: When, when, when I was looking over your body of work, I noticed that it's more dominated uh, by the fantasy horror stuff as opposed to superhero stuff. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious choice by you, or if that was, uh, a management decision based on them thinking your style linked with that or something else.
1: Well, it was probably a little bit of both. I didn't really want to do superheroes. I didn't like doing superheroes. And, and, you know, a, a good manager puts, you know, a good editor, a good manager, whatever, you know, puts, puts people where their strengths are. And, um, I, w- I got into comics because I wanted to do sword and sorcery. That that was what really was getting that that was the trend that was beginning to to um, manifest itself in the early 70s. And um, that's what I wanted to do. That's why I got into comics. A lot of the black and white stuff that I was reading in the Warren comics were, mm-hmm. were um, a bunch of this was some stuff done by a either a South American or He's a South American artist. Maybe he was from Spain. I I don't maybe I'm not sure, but his name was Esteban Moroto, and he. Did some gorgeous pen and ink, you know, barbarian stuff. And man, I wanted to do that. I just wanted to draw like that. I wanted to do that kind of subject matter. And um, so when I got into Marvel, it it just became, it just, without even having to discuss it or anything, or anybody have to make any decisions regarding this, it just became pretty clear that's what I was better at drawing as opposed to superheroes. And that's what I wanted to do. And so that's what they, that's where they put me, you know, um, the monster stuff not being you know, sword and sorcery, but still being moody, requiring, you know, um, a similar kind of rendering uh, and a certain kind of, you know, genre style that, that would work in that in that particular kind of story. So yeah, that that's, I, I think I did one Spider-Man in my entire career, one Spider-Man book. <laughs>
0: yeah, and we, um, we were looking, that was uh, Web of Spider-Man number 49.
1: Yeah. And um, I, I didn't really have that much fun doing that. First of all, I think that I think this, the, the, the Spider-Man costume, some of those really early costumes that have, that have endured down for the ages, I think, they're, they're just not, not good. You know, they just they just reflect the kind of stuff that people were coming up with in the 50s and 60s, and they they would never do a, a costume like that now if it was a brand new character. It would be something really... Well, you know, the, the, the extreme design of right. the costuming now is... And, and so the, so I found that to be limiting, and I also found that, I don't know, just just... Swinging between buildings, I also, you know, was a totally an urban environment, and I, at the time, I was not enamored of drawing, you know, architecture uh, and a lot of straight lines. I like drawing guys in caves and caverns and jungles. Yep. So it was not, it was not my cup of tea, but you know, I tried it <laughs> for what it was worth.
0: <laughs> well, certainly, it's not bad. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's different for your, uh, for your style. It doesn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really. I couldn't really find my voice in that. I mean, I just did. I just did what I thought was going to serve the story. I, I didn't try to, you know, do something really, some new revolutionary take on Spider-Man. I, I, I just, I, I just wanted, you know, do a decent enough story.
3: You were talking about um, inkers that kind of reinterpret the the folks that they are inking over, and uh, I I can think of a perfect example that I can think of when applied to your work is actually the the book that where I discovered you as a kid because my my first exposure to your work is still one of my favorite single-issue comics uh, of all time it was uh Frankenstein number 12 from Marvel and I love that issue that's the issue where it basically transitioned him from the era he was in into the quote-unquote modern era he was brought into I think it was like 1974 mm-hmm. or whatever and uh, we yeah. actually covered that book on the show. This was several months ago now, and it was just fun to kind of rediscover it because I hadn't cracked it open in a couple of years. But something I noticed on that book was it's almost as if your inker was working against you on that book because you're you're bringing this rich, detailed uh, artwork and this rich, detailed flavor to that character. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that was your first issue of Frankenstein taking over from I think it was like a secession of fill-in guys between you and Plug, if I remember right.
1: Yeah, yeah, right, right.
3: And then you came on to number twelve and your inker is uh Vinny Coletta. And Coletta, you know, he's he's famous or infamous, if you will, for kind of I don't want to say hatchet jobbing some of the, the guys he inked, but in that one, it I think it's kind of obvious in a lot of the pages that he's Stripping detail out of it, so I think it really speaks to your artwork that you still shine through, even though he's doing that. And I, I'm wondering yeah. if you know if you're comfortable uh, addressing that. You know, what what did you think of uh, of the job he did with you there?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, thanks for saying that, but I don't think anybody could shine through once once Coletta got hold of their work. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm.
1: um, I, I I actually I actually. Think and I could be wrong about this, but um, I do believe that Coletta actually inked a Neil Adams story once. and if it wasn't Neil, it was someone of that stature and of that skill level, and he, even in he, a strong style. And I think I think it was Neil, but even Neil couldn't survive Coletta. I mean, he, he barely did. I mean, if anybody could, it would be Neil. But and, also, and probably Coletta felt you know compelled to work harder on that one. Um, you know, I never I never got the whole story on why the letter got so much work from Marvel because everybody complained and nobody liked his stuff. Um, I've heard all sorts of, you know, apocryphal goofy stories about how why Vinny got work and all this stuff.
0: Um, I mean, the two, the two things I've heard were, is that he had friends in the industry and that he was fast.
1: Y- yeah, and he was fast. Yeah. And and that that that, that kind of that kind of um Laterally gets me to what I was going to say in terms of other inkers, is that back then you had you know this much more assembly line kind of process, and you had guys who were just inkers, and that's all they ever were. Um, and they might have penciled stories and inked their own stories early on in their career, but they kind of fell into that niche. Jack Abel was one of those guys. Dan Adkins is one of those guys. Um, Chick Stone. Geez, I'm trying to think of there's a whole bunch. There was a whole cadre of of guys, you know, who who were, when I got into the business, I was just in my early 20s, and these guys were in their late 30s, so they'd been around a while, and they were used to just, you know, inking whatever came across their desk. That's how they made a living. And some of them were very skillful, and, and some of them weren't. And um, Tom Palmer was a really great inker of that era, um, who could oh, yeah. ink anybody and make them look great. Um, and I just, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, uh, you're in that kind of, you're relegated to that kind of position. Your your main thing is just to get the job done, get it in on time, and um, and not spill ink on it, you know. So I think, um, and then on top of that, we're talking about an era when there was quite a sea change in the business. You know, this is when, when comics really began to change and have been you know erupting in change ever since. You know, this is when all this new, you know, group of people with different ideas, you know, we're getting into the business. Wrightson and Barry Smith and Kaluda and and uh, they had, they had they were they were being much more, um, you know, they were they had a much more uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, they were they were more more like film auteurs. They they were taking you know grand you know wider ownership of their work. They they wanted to have more control over it. They wanted to have control over the stories that they did. They wanted to have control over who inked it, who colored it, and um, they wanted those stories to stand for you know for what they really for the ima- for, you know for for the image of themselves they wanted to be projected into the world as as artists, and um, that was kind of a new uh, new attitude that prior to that didn't exist. I mean, it, it, as strong as you, you had these strong personalities prior to that, like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, who who definitely took proprietary interest in their work, um, but they were considered more you know outliers in, in terms of that attitude, whereas that became the attitude for you know after after the mid 70s and Neil Adams spearheaded some of that as well. So, you know guys guys who, were, who who were just you know sure enough the pages just to make a living, just doing a decent you know and professional looking inking job. Those guys their 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 days were numbered. Um, you know you had to become more of a you had to have a reputation. You had to start developing a reputation of someone who had a distinctive style, someone who shined, you know, in certain genres of of work, and um, so, you know, when I first got into the business, I mean, guys inked me that, that they were already old guys, I mean, guys in their 50s and 60s were inking some of my my man thing stuff, and um, guys that have long since passed away and passed out of the scene, and um, you know, it was a different, we were, I was on the edge of a different era, we were on the cusp, you know, and uh, when I did get a a chance to ink my own stuff, I, I was inking in such fine detail sometimes that it didn't even show up very well in reproduction, and it was hard for me to adjust to that, and, and eventually, eventually the the industry, of course, adjusted to the artists. You know, you had better printing, and um, now if you can, you know, with the computer, with digital coloring and all that stuff, you know, there's almost no way you can, there's almost nothing they can't reproduce. But obviously, you know, looking back on that old stuff, that that there were you were so limited um, in terms of what you could do, and also limited in terms of you know what I mean, Marvel, I thought Marvel had, you know, except for Marie Severn, Marvel had terrible colorists. My God, I mean, <laughs> it just, DC at least had a, a sense of, you know, doing some more subtle and, and nuanced coloring.
0: But, and, um, and from hearing interviews with Neil Adams, it sounded like he had a lot to do with that. I'm sorry? The, the coloring at DC, it sounded like Neil Adams actually, from interviews with Neil that I've heard, it sounded like he was a big influence on DC expanding its coloring uh, techniques.
1: I, I don't know anything about that, but it just doesn't surprise me because Neil has um, exerted, you know, his influence wherever he's been, and um, so that doesn't surprise me. I didn't know that Neil specifically um, had any kind of voice in that, but but I it, that 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 makes sense.
0: I, I'd, I'd be interested in, in hearing. Uh... A lot of your work, in, when I was looking it over, there's a lot of work in the color comics and there's a lot of work in the black and white magazines as well, which yeah you've expressed a, a love for those magazines as you were growing up. Well, it's funny because
4: you guys seem to, I, I seem to be, been brought onto this show because I'm the big Howard the Duck fan.
2: <laughs>
4: but I, I became familiar with your work more through, and you were talking about being sort of on the cusp of a different era. I mean, I think I probably the first time I laid eyes uh, where I would see, like see your name all the time would be in creepy and eerie, which I was, you know, a big fan of the horror comics. But um, I always sort of pictured those as being sort of on the edge of of the underground comics, you know. And I and uh, mm-hmm. and I and I see you've done stuff for American Splendor and Heavy Metal. I used to read Heavy Metal like crazy also, and I always pictured those things as sort of being that bridge between commercial comics and the undergrounds, and I would always see your name sort of in there. And then I always thought of Howard the Duck as sort of Marvel being, um, acknowledging the satirical influence of underground comics.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
4: I It's not really um, a form of a question. <laughs> but.
1: Right, right. Well, so, um, yeah, no, but but it's an it, it's an it's an interesting comment. I I um, I was a big fan of some of the undergrounds. Um, um, not, and the the one that I, the one that I really liked, and I and it was very very popular in its day. Or this artist was very popular in his day. It's hard to find his stuff now. Was um the stuff by Von Bode. Mm-hmm. Did you know what
4: the Cheech that Wizard? That was and, great.
1: Yeah, Cheech Wizard and Junk Waffle and all that stuff was was, it, it was, pretty was much really, in,
4: really invented the. Graffiti artist style, it seems like, of since the yeah, 80s.
1: yeah, that sort of and, um,
4: art style.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I liked Crom, of course, and I, I liked um, uh, Corbin. I love Corbin's work, um, but Von Godet I really thought was was a really unique artist. Had a really unique uh, take on things, and um, I, the undergrounds were such a phenomena, and I, I, I had no idea even how those guys that even made a living. I mean, when you would go to conventions, I mean, Von Baudet was the only like main, was the only underground guy that would show up at comic cons in those days. And, um, that, that whole thing was like, even to us guys in the business was kind of a mystery, you know, it's like, you know, where do these guys live and how do they make a living? And, mm-hmm. you know, how do they distribute these comics? And they, they, they didn't sell them where they sold regular comics. They sold them in like adult bookstores, you know, and, um, it, it was a weird world. And, um, Yeah, I'm not sure that. I mean, I see what you mean about about the uh, the black and white comics and heavy metal being a bridge. I'm not so much sure that they were like a bridge as as just some. You know, it was a way. It was a way of of seeing something that was more alternative. I think that's what you're saying. They they, they were
4: the only thing that I could get a whole. I was I was lucky because when I was I lived out in the Scott and I both came from the same hometown up in upstate New York, and you know culturally there was just nothing that we we had to go to, you know, three different locations to get all the spinner racks, to get all the Marvel and DC yeah. stuff that we wanted. So, right. You know, and I was and I was lucky enough my father had a subscription to a magazine that was basically a magazine version of the whole Earth catalog. So, four times a year I would get a magazine that had um Arcrumb and um, Dan O'Neill in it. So that was so I got to see some underground stuff at that point, but I was never gonna go and pick one up at the shop. But you know, there was a friend of mine in in middle school and high school had a bunch of heavy metals, and you could always find creepy and eerie on the stand, and you could always find an older kid who had a stash of them that you could could read. And I always yeah. remember it was it was your name, Cor. Whenever Corbin showed up, and um, I always like John Severin too. Seemed to do a lot of art for those comics, and those were always my favorite, you know, those were always when I'd see those names, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm going to get the yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I really, I mean, I I really liked heavy metal, and I love working for heavy metal, and, and the heavy metal that I work for is, of course, nothing like what it is today. I mean, right. It, it's a complete, it's, it, I really kind of lament that. Um, it's
4: kind of like Saturday Night Live to me, it feels like, from the early days of Saturday Night Live to when I watch it today, it's...
1: It's oh, so sort of the yeah, same I, I,
4: format, but it hasn't, the the content has not stayed up to snuff.
1: Yeah, I think it's even more pronounced than that. I mean, the content, you know, although glitzier and, and flashier, is just so, so shallow and so yeah. negative, and just, I, I find it to be, you know, not, not any of it to be at all thought-provoking. When you think of some of the old, some of those stories that Mobius did, and mm-hmm. some of those really, I mean, it was, just, it was a fascinating magazine. I, I worked for You know, I had some steady work there for heavy metal for about a year and a half or two years. And then once they changed hands, I was suddenly persona non grata, and that was the end of that. And I ended up doing a cover for them um, in 94 or 5. I did a a cover for heavy metal. And um, I've had no luck in getting anybody's attention there ever since. Um, And I I don't know quite what of that. I'm not sure. (laughs) You know? Pardon?
4: Maybe it's just as well.
2: <laughs> at this yeah, point. I mean,
1: I look at what I look at where I look at. When I look at the magazine now, I think, well, there's there's no place in there for me anyway. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what I don't even know what I would propose to do for them. But uh, um, yeah, but but the Hurley Heavy Metal was terrific, and and that and that was that was the other thing that was happening then in that era was that the the European comics were were being introduced into into, into American consciousness. You know, comic readers' consciousness, and that was exciting to me i mean just just all the stuff that was coming out in heavy metal that was um from france and germany and italy it just not oh, man that stuff was just was just terrific it was just terrific it just it just stirred the imagination not just with the art but the stories
4: yeah i at at that point i'd never seen uh comic books that were written at the level of of say a good science fi- uh, you know a good adult science fiction novel
1: and yeah uh, yeah exactly yeah
4: it was re- really exciting
3: You know, it's funny, something I just thought of, and I I never put this together before. Um, You know, I I guess I was probably too young to really have have seen or or really noticed your work in the magazines, especially like Heavy Metal um, at that time. But it's funny because, like like Chris said, we grew up in a small uh, town in upstate New York. So everything that was actually on the spinner, where we actually would go and purchase our comics, was all your traditional stuff. You know, as your your Batman and your Spider-Man and your yeah. your Archie comics and stuff like that. So there wasn't anything that was truly, like, edgy. But I remember yeah, when I got yeah. my hand on those Frankensteins, even though, technically speaking, those were mainstream comics, you know, that Marvel was putting out, it had that edgy feel to it. It so, it was it, that because, time in the
4: 70s. That was a right. really edgy time. And,
3: it was. It was and, really you know, edgy. Like, but I, you in know, horror. It
4: was, like, Hammer you know, the prime of her yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah.
3: I'm pretty sure that I got a hold of those issues because we lived across the street from this paper mill that would recycle paper. My mom worked there. And between the comics that she would bring home and basically rescue from the recycler or when Chris and I would sneak under the fence and go over there and take comics on through. our own, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's where I discovered your work on Frankenstein, which, you know, just, I, I love your body of work, but that remains like really close to my heart because I was you know I was a kid discovering that stuff and I wasn't a horror guy at all. I was I was mainstream superheroes. I I was like Superman, Batman, all that. And Chris was really the horror guy. But I discovered that stuff. And when I would find a new issue of Frankenstein or or Living Mummy, it was almost like I chanced across a Playboy. You know what I mean? Because it was (laughs) Ooh, I'm not supposed to have this, but it's look how edgy it is. Look how raw. You know, and and I still get that feel when I look at it today, because even today I'm still not really a horror guy, but I latch onto that stuff. I, I just love it, and I I never really well, made that connection before. But you were kind of working in that with and, with stuff like your work you know for the black and white magazines i just think that's interesting well
4: you're you're also of uh, of the horror movies that you like you seem to tend towards some of the horror, like the horror franken the. oh yeah hammer the classics Frank- yeah the yeah, hammer the universal because i was always oh, a horror wuss and hammer you know?
3: though yeah but i mean i was always a horror wuss i couldn't handle yeah. like the slasher movies and you know the really gory stuff but it, you know, those cheesy old 40s movies where, you know, you never saw any blood or guts. I could handle those, you know, they didn't they didn't bother me so much.
4: Uh, the the Hammer ones, you know, the Hammer Frankenstein movies had a little more visceral edge to them, though. Right. You know, and I think that's sort of what came across in the horror comics of that time, too.
3: Well, you know, speaking of that, um, I was going to ask you now, I, I realized that you were taking over. Uh, Frankenstein from the you know the guys that had worked on it before you especially Plug and, and kind of you know kind of using the model he'd already set but correct me if I'm wrong uh, it seems to me that the longer you worked on that character the more he kind of became yours if you know what I mean and I find that your Frankenstein bears a lot of resemblance to the Christopher Lee version from those Hammer films am I wrong in that.
1: Uh... You're probably not wrong, although that was not a conscious effort on my part. But it mostly, you would just every once in a while get directives from Marvel
2: mm-hmm. to, you
1: know, that you know because the the Carloff makeup, you know, was 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 copyrighted, and right. um, so you you couldn't just totally rip off the the Carloff um,
2: flathead you know, configuration. Yeah,
1: and, and and but but at the same time, we wanted to, you know, we we almost had to. You go with that in order for the character to be recognizable at least recognizable in the beginning and um... so there were some whatever changes were made were just um... changes suggested by the editorial people um, it was like um... the same thing happened early on in the master of kung fu Um Palesi was making uh, shang chi look too much like bruce lee because he was just literally using bruce lee photographs to, to nice. work and uh... They just told Marvel. Told him, no, no, no. You know, we got to get back to the old Chang Chi. You know, we, we he's got to wear the headband and the long hair and and uh, so it was more like it was more that than it was me deciding that I wanted to you know give my own interpretation of the monster because it was hard for me to get away from the the uh, the Carloff model because it's such a great one and it's just mm-hmm. and it's just great to draw because it's just the right place you want to play shadows on a face and everything you know mm-hmm. it, it just. Um, and um, and he was you know a big lumbering monster you know in the comic as well. So there were there were certain things that could be the same, but other things that had to be different. Um, and those differences, I think, were simply just you know differences that uh, that the editorial staff probably suggested I make, and I did.
0: Did did you find? Curi- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I was gonna st- I was just I'm I'm curious to know. Did you find that when you worked on the black and white? Magazines, as opposed to the books that were intended to be published in color, did you find that it that was a very different drawing process, knowing that things were going to be printed in black and white, or was it, you know, really just business as usual?
1: Well, no. When I when I black and white was much more fun because I knew I'd be inking that one. I'd be and also in the black and white they 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 um were they printed that in in a grayscale and so I could you know use toning. Um, and, uh, ink wash and, you know, experiment a little bit with, with that. And, um, the black and white was much more fun to do because I knew I had more, again, it's coming out of having more control of what you want the public to see of your work. And with the, with the Frankenstein monster, I I think I only inked about two of those issues, uh, in the color book. And, um, and that was very frustrating for me, not, not to be able to have, um, inked that, that character more. Um, and, but the black and white, the black and white ones too. I mean, I was working with Doug Mensch at the time and men I think that's some of the be- work better work that I has ever done in his earlier career. And, um, it, you know, we, we just get together on, on the phone or I, I, I was living in Ohio at the time. And so I take a, a, you know, six hour drive to New York city and we, we talk about, you know, what stories we want to do and, and what kind of stories and plot the stories together. And, um, uh, you know, it was just—it was just a lot. It just was more fun. The black and white stuff was really just more fun, more fulfilling.
3: Is Mench your favorite writer to have worked with?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, I—you I, know—it's it, really funny. I—I I, have—I don't. Well, I mean, you know, not ha ha funny, but it's—it's—it's odd that I—I never—I I never really had a criteria early on in my career for who was and who wasn't a good writer. Mm-hmm. and um it took me years to appreciate what a good comic book writer was and um obviously Gerber was was a was a good writer to work with um especially on on some kinds of stories because he had a definite point of view and you knew that what you were drawing was was you know you were drawing it because he wanted to get a laugh or he wanted to make a point and um and so you 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 really had a sense of of the driving you know the the driving theme in, in working with a guy like uh, with Steve, and recently I've been doing. Uh, in fact, I'm just uh, now that I'm back into comics. As you guys may or may not know, First Comics is relaunching a bunch of their old titles from the '80s. And oh, are um, they? No, I hadn't heard that. Oh yeah, they are. They are, and um, they're relaunching Badger. And I'm I I have done four issues. No, I didn't do four issues. I'm doing. I did three. Issues of a five issue relaunch badger. The first issue was done by a new artist, um, uh, whose name, as me. I'm not familiar with him at all anyway. The second one was done by Tony Atkins, but he didn't finish it. He He, he left the project kind of in mid mid uh, process, and I stepped in to ink what he had done and then and then pencil the, re- the the rest of the book. And then I penciled and inked the last three issues, and I'm, I'm, I'm just in the process of inking the last issue, the, the fifth issue. And Mike Farron, who was the creator of Badger, and, and who is now who's writing these five issues, he's a buddy of mine, and and he's a good writer, and um, he's a good writer of fiction. He's he's writing suspense novels now, but he, um, I, as I'm reading these Badger scripts, I mean they're just they're just damn hilarious. Um, he really has a, a knack for for, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. He had a knack for the gag, you know, and, and he'd, he'd be a master, at I think, at doing like funny TV commercials for, for some odd ad agency. You know, he, he just has this way of having this quirky stuff just come out of nowhere. And, um, and the dialogue that he comes up with is, is, is hilarious. And, um, he's become a better writer over the years. He I never read a lot of his Nexus stuff, but I understand Nexus that he and Steve Rude worked on was really, really, really good stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really, I really like working with Mike, um, because it's just so much fun. I every, I know that every page is going to be some surprise of something just, just, just so absurd. And, um, she's been trying to think of some other writers that I've worked with. Um, so many of the writers I've worked with have just been guys, you know, because many, many times on on Conan issues, for instance, I would just do fill-ins, you know, for whoever the current writer was on the color book. And in the black and white Conans, I remember Larry Hama was a writer on a couple of stories. I, I think Hama's a great writer. Uh, Hama really can tell adventure stories well. He can really tell. He really knows how to, to tell a story about, you know, how about warfare, combat, soldiers, samurai mercenaries you know uh hama's just good at that stuff and i think he's a, I think he's one of the he's still writing gi joe i think right for, uh, he
4: has I. such and an and, uh, enthusiasm for it he's yeah, still doing yeah. gi joe you know
3: yeah we met him recently uh at a convention on long island and a uh, heck of a nice guy a really nice guy to meet
1: yeah he and i did a a series um for Warren of a young samurai series called The Young Master, and he wrote. He just, basically he just at the time manga wasn't really really um, introduced into the mainstream of, of comic readers, and um, and you know and and Larry would go and and watch all these old samurai films, you know, downtown of the East Village, and I I'd, I'd go with him sometimes, and this again you had to go to these art houses to see these movies. You know, this was before you know. Forget before Netflix it was before even videotape and and you know and yeah. movie rental stores you know, so you had to go to these movie theaters to see these movies and um, and he he just you know had taken all these movies in and and he just you know used all that influence for the stories that we did and um we we every time we meet at a convention we think well we got to get that we got to get the young, we got to resurrect the young master and get young master stories going again it was a great samurai young samurai uh, comic um, but um. So oh, she's yeah Larry I'm trying to think of other writers I've worked with uh, I've worked like I said I've worked with many of them but usually they were they were guys that I only just worked with one time because I was filling in an issue or something. Um, Bill Tucci's an interesting writer. I, I did a a a, a, um, a painted graphic novel um, of she. It wasn't really a graphic novel was it was uh, I, I did I did full paintings full color paintings and renderings no no line work um, for a, a thirty or forty page she um, issue that he did that he wrote, Bill Tucci, and I, I, I had never read his, his stuff, the She stuff, and um, but uh, there was kind of a character who was an offshoot from there. I forget the guy's name, but it was called PCB, Taking Care of Business. He was a motorcycle guy, and he carried this big 45 single single-action cowboy gun, and, and uh, you know, blew away bad guys, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> I, I liked working with Bill. Um like I said, I can't think right right now. I'm working. Like I said, the only writer I'm working with right now is um, is uh, is Mike Barrett. Oh, I just did a, a short stint with IDW for Robots versus um, Zombies, and I worked with Steve Niles, excellent writer, excellent writer, um, really understands visual storytelling. Um, so few of the panels even had even a caption, let alone balloons. Um, he just described the panel and let the pictures tell the story. Um, so many writers want to be novelists, and they write way too much shit uh, over top of the pictures. You know, just way too much.
2: <laughs> mm, right. And
1: um, another writer who I thought was brilliant in that way was Steve. Was uh, um, um, Steve Dixon? No, not Steve Dixon. Um, Chuck Dixon.
3: Chuck Dixon. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Chuck Dixon is a, a excellent. He he when. Um, a small publisher in California back in the 80s picked up that young master property and um, Larry wasn't available to write it. I wanted to draw it, so they hired uh, Chuck Dixon to write it. he He's another one who really understands... You know, he tells comic book stories the way uh, a cinematographer does with the camera. He he doesn't... He, he's not dying to put in all his dialogue and show people what, how brilliant he is at writing prose. He just tells the story visually. And um, those those guys, I, I think, and then that, that really... Comic book writer. The, the industry needs more writers like that. Believe me. Um, the, there's there's just so much. I don't, I don't know. So much um, proclamation of by these writers who think that they're you know in, that they're they're you know conveying some profound you know social message to you. I can't stand it. It's just, it's just <laughs> crazy.
0: Uh, I've always had a problem with the writers who feel like if you don't if you don't like their work, it means you're not smart enough to understand it. Uh, oh yeah.
1: Well, of course, that's the, that's the, uh, that's, that's, you know, all, all non-talent takes refuge in that.
4: Right. <laughs> right. Well, it was, well, like,
1: I must be great. I must be good. You don't understand me.
4: Right. No. When, when we were talking earlier about art school and the, and, you know, the guys who throw, throw painted a, um, a canvas on the wall, I've always called that the artistic Mexican standoff where you reach that point where you want to tell them, you want to tell them. You just threw some paint at the wall and you're making up something and they're telling you, no, this is my art and this is what I meant at it. You can never 100 percent prove that they're completely bullshitting you. And they, yeah, so, yeah. so you're just at this impasse where you have to go, OK, I yeah, I guess it's art. But I I would be remiss. And I know we're talking about comics, but I just want to take a brief brief sidetrack onto <laughs> your film film career <laughs> I, I'm, I I went to film school and the first day of class it wasn't my first day of film class but it was my first day with my favorite teacher uh, Howie Lester who I ended up becoming friends with but the first day of class um, the first thing he did was hand us out a book of portraits of all the you know some of the most successful and famous directors and that there was a page where they were, you know, in their 20s, and then you see them in their 50s. And he was like, look at the lines on their face. And, and then he said, do you think film is a very glamorous um, thing to enter into? I would suggest you watch this movie called The Demon Lover Diary. And ever <laughs> since that day, I've been looking for the documentary and the original movie to watch. And only today, as, as we were talking before we called you up, they, they, they were like, oh yeah, it was in a movie called Demon Lover and all of a sudden I just flipped out I was just like, yeah, I've been wanting to see it I've got, I turns out it is on YouTube in its entirety under the, the alternate title, The Devil Master so uh, tonight I've, ah, I've, I've, okay. I've got Demon Lover queued up tonight so I'm going to get to see see you in action
1: in acting action <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the it's one of the worst things you'll ever see on film.
4: That's that's <laughs> I mean, what I've heard. I've heard, <laughs> but I've heard it's wildly entertaining. I've heard the documentary on the making of it is is harrowing. Actually, is I think the way my teacher well, docu- made it the sound.
1: Documentary, yeah. Uh, um, ju- just some added insight into the documentary. The documentary was made by, um, a documentary a documentary filmmaker named Jeff Crines who was actually hired to direct the original Demon Lover. Um, why they hired this guy? I don't know. First of all, the, 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 the genesis of this—I'll try to be as brief with it, cause, but, but it, it, it's necessary to understand why this thing is what it is, or it was what it was. I, I met a, a guy from Detroit named Jerry Yunkins when I had a comic convention. He was, he was a big Robert E. Howard fan, and he loved my Conan stuff. And he—we um, just became friends. He put on a small convention in Jackson, Michigan, which is a town uh, near Detroit. Nice little town, actually. Um, and over the years, we, we would communicate and see each other periodically. We had a lot in common. We both liked Robert E. Howard. He was in the martial arts. I was in the martial arts. Um, we, I told him I had done some acting in college, but he called me up one day and he said he has a movie script and he has uh, the money to make this movie. And he had a partner, with a friend of his named Don Jackson, and they were going to make this movie, and they wanted me to be in this movie. They gave me a part, they assigned the part to be in this movie. And uh, like anybody else who had ever been a young actor, of course, I jumped at it. Um, there was no money involved, but there was, you know, they um, signed a release that said, you know, that if the money, if the movie ever didn't make any money, you would get X, X percentage, and... I did do the movie poster painting, um, which they did pay me for because that was my, um, you know, I had a, a uh, reputation as a professional, as mm-hmm. an artist at that point. So they did pay me for the movie poster, which I still have three or four copies of this movie poster, um, <laughs> and it's not a bad. I don't know. It's, unfortunately, you, you may they may or may not be able to show you see that poster on the YouTube. Um, Version, but you can find that poster online.
4: Um, it's. I'm. I'm sure. I was just going to say a Google image search will probably pull it out, and there's probably some people with. Uh, it's probably going for a pretty penny on eBay. I'll bet.
1: <laughs> it, well, no one's been able to find the, the original. I mean, uh, I, I, I tried you know, a couple of years ago to find out who the hell has the original, and I can't find it. Um, at any rate, this film was made. Um, now, keep in mind, Jerry, Jerry, and Don wrote it. Jerry and Don both directed it. Uh, Jerry acted the lead uh, villain in it and he's a he's the worst actor in the world. He had no business being in front of a camera period. <laughs> but he insisted on it. He, he, there was a very immature a lot of immature egos involved in this. And
2: the, really the documentary to it.
1: <laughs> The documentary and you know, what happened was that is that it, it, it turns out that when when Jeff Crimes showed up to start shooting, he brought uh, uh, a small entourage of people with him who were also shooting a documentary of them making the movie, which wasn't, that those kinds of things weren't done in those days. It's done all right. the time now. The making of and all the bells and whistles you see on fucking DVDs. Yeah, 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 but this just wasn't done then. And so people were not, you know, too crazy about it, but nobody was objecting that I recall. And um, as the shoot progressed, it became very clear that Jeff Crines. And I have no problem in saying this. I believe this was his intention. Was was basically trying to sat was was slowly and surely sabotaging the making of the actual movie in order to
4: for his documentary. Make his documentary. Oh, yeah, he Was yeah. way ahead of his time. Then that's like reality TV. Wow, he was way ahead of his time in yeah. <laughs> An and, and
1: sliminess.
4: Yes, innovative sliminess.
1: Yeah, and and it was very. Um, you know, it was it was really underhanded because everybody on the, everybody, you know, for as corny as this film was and and as, and as poorly written as it was, everybody was really pretty much sincere about trying right. to do a, a, a good horror movie, you know, and, and we knew it was going to have a cheap look to it. We, that Jerry was going for the, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead style, you know, and and Kyle oh, Cries was such, he was such a snob and he was such a prick and he just, he, um, he did everything he could. And finally, finally it was Don Jackson who, who um, just finally lost it, and blew up. I think that's in, I think that's in the, uh, in the, the documentary and, and Jackson throws, throws him out, uh, uh, throws him off the set and tells him to get the hell out. And then Don finished shooting the film and Don went on. Don's the only guy. I shouldn't say the only guy, but the, the, uh, the, John, Don is the one of the few people in that whole production who went on to be a, a, filmmaker, a filmmaker himself. Now he did a lot of, uh, he did a lot of odd... He moved to L.A. He, he, he's got a body of a lot of odd odd work. I mean, it's he's definitely a cult favorite type. Um, and the guys who did the um, special effects w- for what they were worth in those days, you know, there was no digital stuff, so it was all, you know, glycerin and food coloring for blood and, you know, clay for flesh being ripped out and stuff like that, but they were uh, guys... Uh, two brothers, their last name was Stotek, and they went on to be... Um, award-winning special effects guys in Hollywood many years later. So, um, so a few people actually emerged from this, you know, and stayed in the film business and Mm -hmm. looked, you know, and Jerry did not. Jerry immediately just went down the tubes after this. He went bankrupt. He sold He ended up having to sell every 35 millimeter copy of the film. We've, we've been trying to, some friends of mine and I in the film who are film collectors have been trying to track that, track that stuff down. We, We had no luck. Um, but it, the thing about it is it, it, the bad parts of it are so bad. It's not even like Plan 9 from Outer Space bad, where you get a kick out of how bad they are. It's so bad, it's just painful. You are just you just realize that, you know, 10 minutes of your life will never get back, you know, <laughs> just having to watch that. But there are other parts of it that are really pretty damn good and pretty unique. Um, and it just, it was a great experience for me just, just to do this, and um, nobody could act. Well, there were a couple of guys. There were two guys that were DJs, um, and they just had a natural, naturally they had a good personality. voice a
4: natural, Yeah,
1: yeah, they were pretty good. And I, 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 have to say, if I do say so myself, I was okay, and I at least knew my lines. Most people didn't. Um, but the leads, Jerry was, a, was the lead villain, and there was this guy who was supposed to play this detective who was getting to the bottom of all these cult murders. Oh, the poor man, the poor man! I just feel so bad for him. He just, he just, he didn't, he just didn't know what he was doing. Why they kept him and what well, I mean they're, they're, it's just it's just hilarious it's just it's just you have to see this movie yeah you, you can't
4: I'm uh you can't, I'm going yeah, to see it, it right after we're done talking tonight <laughs> 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 and now I've got um, a layer on it to, to in watching it so it's going to be really fun yeah
1: but they're they're the documentary I've not seen and I, I don't even know if I'm featured much in that I know that I read an interview with Don Jackson a couple of years ago just before he died and he said that um he he. Um, while they were making this documentary, he, he told people to interview Gunnar Hansen, who was in the uh, original.
4: Texas chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the original, yeah.
1: yeah. He said Gunner, you know, interview Gunnar Hansen, interview Val Merrick. He's the comic book artist from Marvel Comics, and they pretty much ignored us, and they just kept you know doing doing things like watching Don get irritated, and they kept filming things like watching Jerry, you know, get irritated and be an asshole, and you know they they it was, it was a hatchet job from the beginning. Mm. Um, there's no doubt about it. And, um, so anyway, uh, and then Don died a few years ago, I think, of leukemia. Um, I did manage to see him about eight or ten years ago at a San Diego Comic Con. He came up to my table, and I hadn't seen him in so long, and we laughed and laughed and laughed about the Demon Lover. All we had to do was look at each other and think and say, "Oh, Jerry Young, It just—we couldn't stop laughing. You know, it's just—it was a great experience for no other reason than that. You know, to have that memory.
4: Well, I'm pretty good at tracking stuff down, and this is a. Um... Uh, If I would have known the alternate, if I would have known it was called The Devil Master, I might have found it faster. But the the documentary has been one of those things I've never been able to find even, you know, a fifth generation VHS -er or anything anywhere. So I'm still looking forward to to seeing it. And I always love the backstory. And to me, I'm just as fascinated... With movies made for $50 as movies made for $50 million, I, I almost, um, as I've gotten older, I take them, I keep taking them more seriously till they're almost on the, you know, I, I take them almost on the same level as Hollywood movies. In...
1: Well, you know, the, yeah. And, the, you know, the real, I think the significant aspect of this movie and movies like it made in that era um, are simply that it, it was made on film. Um, you know, which movies aren't made. Very few people make movies on film, actual you know, photochemical film anymore. Yeah. And the um, it's an artifact of of an era. and right. We, I can recall, like you know, the, the the cinematographer that we eventually hired. He had this big you know Panaflex camera. I mean, these cameras, and this was this was a handheld one. This is one you could move around, but it was still a big son of a bitch. You know, compared to what the the, the, the digital cameras of of today and um, and of course, you know, photochemical film requires light and we, there's just the lighting problems we mm-hmm. had. And I, there's this one night scene we did where we had to like, a lot of the lights blew out from, we, we had, we had everything plugged into this old farmhouse and a lot of the lights blew out. So everybody had to drive their car up to the scene and just blast their, their headlights their, on it, their headlights on it to yeah. get enough light to shoot the scene and, you know, stuff like that, you know, those are great old you know war stories. You know, no, no one's ever going to tell those stories anymore. But what they're you know all they do now is they shoot it and they take it back and you know get they have some sort of you know super duper film editing program they do on their computer and they can make it look like anything they want. Yeah, if you know? it
4: didn't turn up on the film, they can just make a model of it in a computer and pop it up there and,
1: they, they, and you're fine. Exactly, exactly. And so there was no no risk, you know, because we yeah. didn't know what the hell we were half the time we didn't know what we were doing. We just, you know,
4: shot. Oh, well, and on then, a film like that, what's at risk is usually two or three people's life savings and stuff like that. So it's usually yeah, yeah. A little more higher stakes, really relatively. I'm sorry. Well, I- I'm glad. I, I don't want to hijack the uh... comic talk <laughs> too much, but I was no, no,
1: no. Every, everybody obsessed. eventually who interviews me gets they get to they they actually get to the subject, and that's fine with me because it, it's it's I've done a lot of acting actually. Um, and when I was I was living in Cleveland in the nineties or the eighties and nineties, and I did a couple of TV shows um, there and a lot of theater. Helped establish a couple of uh, independent theaters or uh, regional theaters there. And a couple of years ago, I did a short film I did that I financed through Kickstarter. A, a friend of mine who was a filmmaker up in Oregon, where I was living, we got um, money to do an 18-minute short, which was really a good piece, a really good piece of work. I, I, we haven't put it on YouTube yet. We're going to because we don't we want a little bit of music score to it. But a really nice little tight piece, three actors, um, well written, and and it, it's a nice nice piece. It's my it's my latest and you know, who knows, maybe my last effort at... Um, at uh,
4: filmmaking?
1: At Thesp- yeah, filmmaking or thespianism. I, I don't know. We'll see. Well, but, spe- um,
4: Speaking of Kickstarter, um, I was reading on your webpage that you were doing a comic that you raised Kickstarter money for the the Little Bighorn.
1: Yeah, it, it's a graphic novel. It's called A Dust and Blood, and um, it's about... It, it's about the Little Bighorn. It, it, it's um it, there's no real revelations here. Everybody pretty much knows what happened at the Little Bighorn. or At least mm-hmm. they know the final outcome. This is just this is like what Private Ryan was for D-Day. It's just like this is told from the standpoint of two regular guys. One was a, was a was a scout for Custer. The other one was was a was a was a Lakota young Lakota warrior, and it, it's told from their point of view. it, it shifts back from their from one point of view to the next, uh, over to what's happening, and how, just how confusing, you know. I, I think not not that there was one a made-for-TV film a few years. Well, it's been quite a few years now, uh, now fifteen years maybe. But with um, Michael Cole called um, or Gary Cole called the um, Son of Morning Star, and, and it was a, a pretty good, I think, three-part made-for-TV film about the Little Bighorn, and they really got into the into the detail. And, and, and in terms of what was going on there, how confusing the battle was. And uh, Custer, he, he stood up his forces, and if he hadn't done that, he might have survived. And all, all these missed, you know, crossed wires and missed, missed messages and, mm-hmm. this, you know, misunderstood signals. And and, uh, and, and those Indians, it just it just so happened there were like 10,000 Indians in one place at one time. They almost never, ever would gather um, into that uh, they, they, you know, but they were hunter gatherers. Hunter gatherers have to exist in small bands. They That's can't, right. they can't have ten thousand guys. Yeah, and they just happened to be, they just happen to be, you know, having like a powwow there and, and having some sort of, you know, get together talking about what they were going to do and who was going to do what and what, but they, you know, how are they going to handle, you know, the, the incursion of the whites and and then they were going to disperse and go off and do their own thing like they usually do. It just so happened that they all happened to still be together. And when when Cutland, the Seventh Cavalry rode up on them, so it, it was just um, just a lot of interesting stuff like that that, that um, we're, we're trying to you know bring to life in the story, and um, and I'm, I'm just penciling it and, and inking it in a very traditional pen and ink style, you know, um, trying trying to give a combination of you know a Frederick Remington illustration, and, and we're doing it in we're doing the book in a landscape. Format as opposed to portrait format, so it'll be a, a horizontal book because I wanted to get that sense of a John Ford Western when you know everything is just wide and mm-hmm. you, you get a sense of the space, you know.
4: Now, are you, so, you writing this too? Uh,
1: my friend Jim, who he's he's also the filmmaker, the guy that I did the other the earlier okay. start with, he he's he wrote it, he adapted it, he did all the research, he wrote most of the dialogue. I. I could have had more of a hand in the writing, but really didn't want to because all this drawing—I mean, I'm drawing hundreds of Indians and soldiers and researching all this stuff—and that's all. The, there's a lot of heavy lifting, and I, I just left the writing chore to him. I hope it works out. You know, I hope it. So far, I like what he's written. So. Um, when
0: when is that expected but, to be issued?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I'm I'm chugging away on this, and I, I get interrupted by. Some jobs that I really need to take, like storyboard jobs, advertising jobs, because the money is very quick and very good. And then I've got this Badger series to finish up. And um, just a lot of complications, you know, like a couple of clients weren't paying me, and I I had to worry about that for a while. But, I mean, the the upshot of it is um, it's hard for me to stay, to keep working steadily on this, as steady as I'd like to. I just get about 10 pages done and have to put it down and, and move on to something else. So, but... We're hoping to get everything, all the art complete by by sometime late in 2015, probably like November, and then shipping it off to the printer, and we expect to have it out by March, or, you know, early spring of 2016
0: at the has, latest. Has it been and fully funded at this point?
1: Oh, yeah, it's fully funded. It's been fully funded. We we got more money than we wanted. We probably could have asked for a lot more. Um, it's... It, as it stands, it's still a pretty generous amount. And, you know, I'm getting it basically... Uh, I, just, I just figured it out by, you know, page rate. Like, what would I want paid per page? And then that's how many pages will it be, and that's the money, you know, and that's... How, well, then we have to pay our letterer and pay our printer. So, um, you know, what's that going to cost? And we figured it out, and we got that money. Um, so it's it's dragging on a bit, and it's kind of bothering me because I don't like being late. And, and plus, it, it, you know, the people have given... People have given us money, you know, to, to see a product, uh, exist. And, uh, I, I want to show, I want to make, you know, I want to complete it for them and show them, a, you know, show them that it's been worth their, their time and their, and their, and their investment.
0: I would be, uh, very upset if we got through this phone call without, uh, asking you to tell us about the creation of Howard the Duck. Ah,
1: uh, okay. Um, rather inauspicious, I'll tell you that. It just, um. Steve was, it was an episode of Man-Thing, as you, as you know, um, I think Journey into Fear and, um, where Man-Thing was appearing and Steve was, you know, trying to remember exactly what he said or what was indicated, but he wanted to do something more interesting with the character than just being some, you know, swamp monster running around scaring people. And, um, he, he introduced this, this, uh, dimension or this aspect to, to, man thing, which was that he he could open dimensional portals through his psychically. So, okay, that's great. So then what happens? Does he go through the portal or does someone come through the portal over here? Well, he decided he's going to have a whole cast of weird characters come through the portal and Howard the Duck was one of them. Um, And when he, he just wrote in the script, I just want this duck to look not so cartoony, but I want him to look like if there really was, like if Donald Duck really was a real guy he was a three-dimensional and keep in mind this is long before three-dimensional animation you know digital animation when you the only animation you could imagine was two-dimensional animation so um he said just 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 think how weird it would be if you if you saw this you know duck kind of looking half human just walking down the street and talking to you you know and so i just i just drew it I, i didn't even do any you know preliminary sketches or, or model sheets for it or anything, and it, we didn't have to send it in to be okayed by, by Roy or, or um, Steve just didn't require that, that I show him any preliminary sketches ahead of time, and uh, I just showed him the, I just did the page, and when he received the page, I am told, I, and I didn't witness this because he was in, I think he was in New York somewhere, and I am told by other f- uh, friends of his who were in the comic biz at the time that he looked at that page I drew, and he said, this is it. This is this is pure gold for me. <laughs> so that that was it. Um, from then on in, I, I drew. I, I didn't. I didn't draw the duck for much longer because then the, when it became its own book, uh, Roy Thomas decided, and I don't know why he decided this. And at the time, I wasn't really that invested in it to argue with him about it. But he decided that I would not draw the book that Frank Brunner would, and Frank did a nice job on the character. I mean, he it made it, it did an entirely different duck than I was doing. But but he 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 you know really. Really helps to keep that character vital and interesting.
0: But then, then you did come back and do a couple of issues. I'm I attempted to say around issue 23, 26, somewhere around there in the in the book. And when I when I looked through that, it looked like you brought it a little bit more back towards your version of him.
1: Yeah, I think you're talking about. Wait, I think I think this, this issue came out in like 77, I believe, or maybe
0: around, around that.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, it was a double issue, I think. Yeah, um, I yeah, I did, I did.
3: Um, you did the Star Wars yeah, did, parodies. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That I did. I did that one, and then, um, and then I didn't do it again until um, in the mid '80s. Um, in the revival.
3: I, I did, right?
1: uh, just, just somewhere several Yeah, it, that that was a very very odd. Um, that was that was a set of circumstances that, that I am um, trying to. Re- Rather anomalous kind of a thing. Jim Salakrup, I, I had, I was involved with a, with a, uh, I was actually doing some TV work, acting and writing for a, for a TV comedy company that we were, that we were shooting in Cleveland. But at the time, cable television was still in its infancy, and Comcast, um... I wasn't Comcast. Who was it? It was anyway one of the early cable companies. They had all this bandwidth, and they had all this stuff that they, they had all this basically space that they wanted to broadcast things on. So. We would produce these little shows that were broadcast in Cleveland, and nobody cared. But then they, would, but, but then they put them on, uh, on international. So you know, it would be like the public access channel. You know, in in Seattle, Washington, could see these shows that we had produced. If, if they, if they were, if they, you know, happen to stumble upon, you know, the public access channel at three in the morning. And um, and these shows were pretty. They were pretty good. They were kind of more like SCTV kind of shows. And we, I was in New York. At Marvel, and I had a, 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 a videotape of them, and I asked the guys at Marvel if they would care to see them. So we went up to the the visual, you know, the 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 video room, and we watched these shows, and everybody laughed and liked them. and And Jim Salakrup was among the um, guys watching, them, one of the editors at Marvel. Then about a year later, he called me and he said, "You know what?" Um, You know, I I know you've been doing some work with Harvey Pekar. And I said, yeah. And he said, "Um, I want Harvey to write Howard the Duck, and I want you to draw it. Because you're both living in Cleveland now, and Howard's supposed to be from Cleveland. And he he thought this was just a million-dollar idea. Well, Harvey was having none of it.
4: I was going to say, that sounds great, but I don't think Harvey Pekar would really like to do that. (laughs) Would have?
1: No, no. Harvey was a very Harvey had no notion about collaborating with other people in the business you know the way the way most of us who get into this business whether it's this or movies or, or, or you know anything you know you, you collaborate with people and you you, you you change gears you try this you try that harvey did that was just to him that was as brutal as female circumcision he just wasn't going to hear it you know he just <laughs> I was I, I asked him I said you know, I called him on the phone, I told him what Salakrup had to say. He goes, who is this Salakrup guy? He's crazy. I, I hate this guy's shit. I hate mainstream comics. I'm not doing it. Um, and uh, so that was the end of that. And I said to Jim, I said, he, he's just absolutely just, it's just he's implacable. There's, there's no way we're going to penetrate this. He's just not going to do it. He said, "Well, what about those guys that you did those TV shows with?" He said, "There was this guy named Chris that wrote the shows that, that, that wouldn't. What, what about him? Would he write a comic book?" I said, "Well, I don't know. He's never written a comic book, and I, I really don't know." And so, I um I asked him if he want if he was interested. He said, "Yeah, I'll try for I'll try for one issue." So we made up our own story and and just it, the the big thing was it was supposed to take place in Cleveland, and we both live in Cleveland, so we do all you know we have we would actually draw a lot of the Cleveland landmarks that are left that were left out of the movie and the comic book, you know, because, there were, because nobody's ever really been to Cleveland. Right. You know?
2: So, um,
1: um, And so it wasn't, I mean, I don't know, it wasn't that bad of a story. Uh, Chris didn't really have a lot of success. I mean, he didn't have a lot of, he had no experience in comics. I'm not sure how successful the story was or wasn't. Some people liked it, some didn't. Um, but that was the end of that, and that was... Um, I think that was the last time I did the I did any duck work for Marvel. Um, would, the Duck work.
4: I would never want to do write a Howard try to write a Howard the Duck movie or a comic as my first time out. That would be so daunting to capture the yeah. actual. It had such a distinctive flavor to it.
1: Yeah, this guy was not a comic book fan, so he he was pretty much mm-hmm. um intrepid about that. But on the other hand, you know, I I just. I, I just I just thought it would be kind of fun, and I thought, well, Chris and I sure. work together and other things. At least at least we'll cooperate. You know, at least there won't be any and we don't have to work by mail or FedEx because mm-hmm. we live in the same town. And Salakrup okayed the plot. He okayed everything. Um, and like I said, there were the, the the reception of it was was rather lukewarm. Um, some people thought it was kind of funny. Other people just didn't see any point to it. They didn't think it was at all like you know Gerber's Howard, which it wasn't. I mean, how could it be? You know. Right. And. um and uh, so that was that. People always ask me, you know, who's that Chris guy? That, that Chris Steger guy was. I said, well, I, said, I, said he, I said that was his first and only foray into comics. You'll never find him. Don't worry about it. You know. So that was that story.
0: Now I remember sometime around '76 when when Howard the Duck was kind of a phenomenon, and uh, I was about 13 years old, and I met Steve Gerber at a comic convention, and I was. Too young and too unsophisticated to understand his humor at that point. Uh, But I do remember him being very, very patient or surprisingly patient for, you know, a guy that was at least several years older than me and, you know, clearly more sophisticated. But uh, I'm curious what it was like working with him back then on Man Thing and in Howard the Duck and all of that, because he, he definitely had a different type of voice than most of the creators of that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve was a nice guy. Steve, um, I can't say we were close friends by any any means. But first of all, we never lived in the same city at the same time. Um, when I was in New York, I think he was leaving. He moved to Las Vegas. Uh, back in the early '80s, he did that that kind of like protest comic against Marvel called Destroyer Duck. You know, which was
2: his mm-hmm.
1: his duck. Um, I worked with him. I, I, I did a backup story for one of those, for a couple of the, the Destroyer Duck stories. We did worked together on the on that graphic novel, Void Indigo. Um, I, I have to say that that you know, I think Steve really had some great visions. I think Steve was ahead of his time. Void Indigo, especially. I I look back on that and I realized that I was I didn't I didn't have the energy and the focus on that job that I wish I'd had. Not to say that I didn't do a professional job. I I I, I did my best and. I read the script and talked with Steve a great deal. Um, part of what what drained a little bit of my enthusiasm was it was Steve was just notoriously late. And I'm not like telling tales out of school. Everybody knows this. That knows Steve. He was so late that he's beyond late. It's one thing to be a month late. That's really late with a script. But he would be like three months late. And you know things like that just. Archie Goodwin was the editor, and Archie's was the nicest guy in the world. And I'm telling you, Archie was just a super mensch of a guy. And Archie just was tearing his hair out. And <laughs> when I finally did get scripts, I was then pressed to get them done faster than I normally would have had to do them. You know, and no one likes to work under those conditions. Um, when you're when you're rushed to do something, you can't do your best. You just can't. Um, and 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 I could have. Then the the only alternative I had was to just be and do pull another Steve and say, well you'll get them you'll get the art when you get it you know you'll get it when it's done I'm gonna really break my ass on it I I, I just couldn't bring myself to do that and then I then i be more of a nervous wreck because I know that I was making things late as well so um, by the time the Void Indigo uh, the Epic comic series it was a graphic novel then it went into three issues of an Epic comic series and at that point it just um, I I was burned out I was just so I was just so, I don't know, I, uh, I don't know, it's hard to, see. you just, you know, you just lose your, your focus and your, and your enthusiasm for something when you're expecting a script that doesn't come, then, and, and then finally it comes, it's so late, and I would call Archie and say, okay, I finally got the script from Steve, I said, but you've got to give me more time on this, and Archie would say, geez, I'd just love to give you more time, Val, we just don't have it, so then it was all on me to, uh, catch up, and that's just no way to work, and, um, when I look back on that project, I think, boy, that could have been just dynamite if we if, if it was done right. If Steve would have kept kept on schedule, uh, I could have spent because I look at the art and I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done that. I should have painted this differently. Um, unfortunately, that's just the way things work out. And, and the up- I mean, getting getting back to linking this up to what you're saying about working with Steve, he, he was just he was a, a good guy. I mean, he was he was a good guy to talk with. He was an interesting guy. Um, we never became, like I say, real close friends. If we ran into each other at conventions, we'd always have a drink together, have a lot of laughs, um, which unfortunately, I knew that he had a lung problem. I didn't know that it was as dire as it was. And um, I think just about, it was maybe around 2006 or 7, maybe even earlier, We were, we were taught, we, I talked to him on the phone. We were talking about, you know New York City and how long it had been since we'd been there, and you know we hadn't been there since 9/11, and how much it must have changed. And we were talking, we were just talking about a lot of stuff and projects we could possibly do in the future and stuff. And then two years later, he's dead. You know, um, so all I can say about you know ultimately what I can say about Steve is I regret it. I didn't know him better. I just regret it. I didn't spend more time talking with him and developing projects with him. I think I think that he was a really unique talent in this business and. um... Uh, I just, you know, it just would have been great to have worked with him more and done more stuff.
3: I, uh, I know, that I would, uh, I would love to be able to visit the the parallel universe where maybe you had uh, had penciled his Phantom Zone series as opposed to uh, to Gene Colan, because I know that you know you, you've said that superheroes aren't really your thing. That's not really your genre. But I've always always kind of felt that maybe that wasn't necessarily. Gene's natural genre either, but I've always been really impressed with the job that he did on that book. Are, are you familiar with that series? The Phantom Only Zone? by
1: name. No, only by name, but I know I have not read it, no. I'm going to have to look it up now. I thought it, it was
4: the most, like, closest a Superman story ever came to a horror story. It yeah, was the Superman horror story.
3: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It, it's essentially, I mean, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Superman lore, but it's essentially... It's the one time in the in the pre crisis continuity where the Phantom Zone villains weren't just cartoon characters. When they broke out, the world was at in dire peril. They were intent on just you know running rampant and just destroying everything. And in this story, They're Superman can't stop in them instance. because he gets trapped in the zone while all the villains get freed. And it's. It's such an exciting story to me because, again, you know, you, you've got Steve Gerber and Gene Colan, and they're working on Superman, and it's just so odd because that's just not either one of those guys. That's you, you don't associate yeah. either one yeah. of them with that character. But I think right. that's part of what works with it, and, uh, and I, I would have loved to have seen your take uh, on that as well because, again, you know, you're so. Yes. Uh, associated with with the horror genre but I think that that could have been very fun. Um speaking of, of which I was going to ask you I've noticed that your your uh name is in the credits for some episodes of Young Justice but I I don't know what it, what is your association with the show?
1: What show is that?
3: The the Young Justice show it was um was
1: yeah, it was like did, the right? junior
3: Justice League show. It had Superboy and Robin, and basically it was like like all the teen sidekick characters formed a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is according to IMDb, anyway. Maybe there's an error on IMDb, but uh, I, I just recently watched the series myself, or, or the first season anyway, is available on Netflix, and I just watched all the way through, and I thought it was fantastic. But as I say, IMDb has you credited somehow associated with the show, but it, I, I didn't see what the exact um, um, association was.
1: Boy, I couldn't even begin to tell you because that's <laughs> the first time I've heard of it. Uh, maybe it, maybe
3: there is. That's the is first time I've heard right of it. Okay. <laughs> I,
1: I, there's none that I know of. I mean, mistakes like that are made. Um, unless, boy, I was just I was going to say no. There's no way. I I know that certain things like have happened, like. Um, there was some really bad martial arts film made a few years, more than a few years, I guess, in the late 80s. Um, uh, the only name actor in it was Eric Roberts, and um, mm-hmm. one of the characters who one of the characters who was a martial arts guy, young young, real dedicated martial arts guy. He was through. He was done working out, and you saw on a desk or table where he, you know, had his stuff there was a, an issue of the young master, that, that samurai character that Larry Hama and I did. Um, so that peripherally, you know, puts me in that picture. <laughs>
2: well,
1: it, 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 if, 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 if I'm involved at all in that, in that show you mentioned, it, it's probably something like that, just some, some, you know, total, you know, little MacGuffin like that. It's just, I'm, um, I'm looking
0: at the page and I, I can actually answer the question. Oh, okay. Uh, It's apparently the character of Madame Xanadu appeared in ten episodes, and you're listed as a co-creator of that character.
1: Okay, well, I'm not a co-creator. I only drew one issue of Madame Xanadu, Um, but I did. I did do an issue of Madame Xanadu. That's for sure for DC. It was one of my few jobs I ever did for DC. That's why I remember it. Okay, Hmm. I wonder if that's that's how the IMDb
4: landed you on the IMDb. So.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how this stuff. Yeah, I mean everything. There's so, everything is so much cross reference these days. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing. Um, anyway, I think we've exhausted pretty much everything here. The the, the high points. Unless you guys have something else.
3: Um, the only other question I really had was, uh, you know, of of the characters that you have, uh, have touched and worked on. Uh, did you have a particular favorite?
1: yeah for sure, the young master the character Hama and I worked on I love that character um, and uh, I, I of course like working on Conan, but you know Conan is a, a universal kind of character um, uh, i always, I always enjoyed working on the on the duck whenever I had the chance um, and uh, gee, that's about it um, I'm having fun with this badger character, which i didn't think I would. Um, I, I pretty much took it over just as a favor to Mike because he and I are buddies. But um, once I got to into the script, it's crazy. I mean, he's got Badger doing doing a mixed martial arts fight with Vladimir Putin and beating the shit out of Putin. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just you can't get you can't get crazier than that, man. I mean, um, you know, because Putin does this macho thing and he's a black belt in judo and all this stuff. So
4: wrestles bears, it, it, yeah,
1: yeah, and it it just that that's that's been. That's that's a lot of fun, but um, the Young Master I think was the one I really um, felt like I really put my signature on that, and I put a lot of effort into that, and uh, that has to be that has to be it. Now that I, I I might think of something else later on, but I'm pretty sure that's it. Well, the
0: the, the last question I'd throw out to you is just uh, you mentioned Badger, and we discussed the uh, Kickstarter uh, little Bighorn project. Is there anything else you're currently working on that you'd like to just throw out there for everyone?
1: Well, um, I don't know if, if your audience in this post pod- podcast would necessarily be this interested, but I'm 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 my, my what I do. And I don't want to say in my spare time, but one thing that I'm really t- trying to cultivate in my career is to, I'm as uh, being a Western artist. I have always loved horses and the West, and I have you know over the years been doing a lot of um, Western art and equestrian art. And I, I just moved to Texas a couple of years ago, and I managed to be in a group show. This um, in September, end of September, middle of September, um, at the Museum of Western Art in Kerrville, which is a pr- pretty prestigious museum. It is one of the museums you know you go to, to if you're if you're you know a Western art fan. Um, and it's it's like the cowboy you know art Hall of Fame and all that stuff. And so i I'm, I'm going to have a I'll be appearing with a, a few other artists in a group show there in September, and I'm hoping to get. I'm hoping to get that off the ground. Um, I still like doing comics, but it's a grind. It's a grind, you know, getting x amount of pages done every day and always working in black and white, which is a strain on the eyes. and um, I'll always want to have a comic book project, you know in the offing, but I'm really hoping to get um, my cowboy paintings um, you know hit hit up hit some major markets and and start selling. Um, it, it's just something I, I love. Um, I, I uh, I've owned horses and you know had a lot of experience with, with horses, but I've never actually worked on a ranch or you know done rodeo stuff. But and 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 that's the stuff that I kind of kind of chronicle in my work is it's very documentary kind of realistic painting of, of contemporary ranch work and contemporary rodeo stuff. I don't do historical cowboy stuff um, because you know you have to do a lot of research to make sure it's right. Otherwise, you get people saying they didn't have saddles like that in 1874. You know.
0: And uh, Mm -hmm. so, well, um, anyone, I'm sorry, anyone who's interested in seeing that, if you go to ValMayrick.com and look under Fine Art, you'll see some beautiful, uh, some beautiful stuff, including work with horses in there, and uh, some really impressive stuff in there, Val.
3: Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out because I I enjoyed the hell out of the one issue you did of uh, of Jonah Hex. I've always wondered why you didn't do uh, do more Hex because that's a good issue.
1: Yeah, well, you know, again, it it just comes down to. You know, they didn't ask me to do it, and you know, at the time, Larry Hama was, was writing and editing that book um, at, at DC, so mm-hmm. he tossed that work my way. Um, you know, and it really, you know, you do need to have friends in in the right places, um, some, because there, there there are people that it, it's, um, and, you know, not it's just your talent is not sometimes is as, as, as good as you are, you know, or as well known as you might be. Um, you know, there are guys, you know, well placed at Marvel that are getting a lot of work to people they like you know, or or their friends, and it's just, it's just not, I'm not saying that's a corrupt or terrible thing, it's just the way it works, you know, you work with people that you're familiar with and that you can depend on, and you've developed a relationship with, and Mm -hmm. um, I would have loved to have done more Jonah Hex, I I think, Um, and there just, you know, there just aren't that many Western books, I mean, let's face it, I I don't think of, I I can't think of any um, right now, I'm sure there's got to be something out there. There's so many independent titles. There's got to be somebody. There are
3: now, but piece. at that time, I think I think that book was the only one that was running, I, I do believe.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, I guess uh, it's time to just thank you for coming on and spending this time with us. Uh, it's really, really been a pleasure having the chance to talk Absolutely. to you and get your insights. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to getting my uh, commission when uh, you get the time to do it for me.
1: Yeah, you wanted the mummy, right?
0: That's that's the one, and the check is in the mail. <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> okay,
3: great, great. For folks that want to uh, to discover you or or rediscover you to kind of connect with you, uh, where where's a good uh, place that they could do that?
1: I've got a Facebook page, and I've also got I I friend pretty much anybody that's that's you know been a, a fan, um, and i you know my my website. Um, I don't have a blog; I just don't have time to get into all that stuff. I, I <laughs> and I, I just um, but but um, I have I have a, a the, the guy who built my website he pretty much posts a lot of stuff for like where I'm going to be appearing you know what conventions I'll be at uh, he he has that posted on my site um, he tries to make keep keep that um, uh, keep that current and uh, I I I go to Facebook I don't go to Facebook every day I post some new art every once in a while um, and. Uh, yeah, you know, mostly I just, I just, you know, use Facebook to just see what other people, just, just to communicate with other people, other artists, see what they have to say, what they're doing, what they're up to. Um, but that's about it. Um, yeah, that's about it. That, that, but they should be able to find everything else about me they need to know there.
3: Oh Excellent. Man. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: No, I, I really, no, I, I'm glad you're asking. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's my, it's my, uh, it's my pleasure. I, 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 um, I think if a person's sincere, you know, it doesn't matter how much you like their work or you, as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're not being obnoxious about it. I, I, I managed to, <laughs> I was at a small show a couple of weeks ago and I met Boris Vallejo's son. You guys know who Boris is? Oh yeah. Great, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Well, his son has, is already, he's in his thirties now. His son has turned into an artist in his own right, a very good artist. And, um, I, I was, his is Dorian, Dorian Vallejo. And I, I, Spoke with him briefly, and I, I was said, well, first I said, first of all, you're, you know, Dorian, you're really a very fine artist in your own right. And then years ago, when I first moved to New York City, I was, I just was knocking on everybody's door, you know. Again, way pre-internet, pre-everything, you know. And I, I somehow, I was, you know, I was in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. I called up Frank Rosetta, that I got his, I got his phone number from Dan Atkins, and I b- bothered him. I went and bothered Neil Adams, and eventually ended up working with Neil at Continuity. That's a whole other story, probably a whole other podcast. You had to do a podcast about Continuity and talk to all the guys that were working there in the seventies. It was what a trip that was. Um, But anyway, I also uh, found out Boris Vallejo's you know uh, number and address, called him up, and asked if I could come up and you know look at his studio and have him give me some pointers and painting. And I did. And I mean, I just God, I I think back on it now, I must have been. I must have just bugged the shit out of him. I just one of these guys just wouldn't leave, you know. I kept asking him questions, and he showed me his studio and the kind of paint that he uses, the brushes that he uses, what kind of gesso he puts on his can, all this stuff. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And I left there, and I'm and I thought, geez, I I, I think he was really getting anxious for me to leave, you know. And I and I told Dorian, I said, I, I said, tell your dad. I said, I've always admired his work, and I, I hope I didn't bug the shit out of him, you know, <laughs> 30 years ago. <laughs> and uh, you know, you know, I think as long as people are sincere and well-meaning, uh, it doesn't matter if they tell you they like your stuff or you know whatever. It's just, I, I um, I'm at a point now in my career in my life that when I hear people, it's very gratifying to know that people liked my work and that, that I, I actually you know gave people you know a little bit of uh, entertainment. Um, it, more because, more you know, than you more. work, you, yeah. I mean, you know, because you know, ultimately, you you hear things. You go to conventions, you hear things and stuff, you know, but you know ultimately we're working uh in the dark writers artists you know we work alone we produce this stuff we send it into the publisher and then that's the end of that we get paid and we hope somebody we hope people like it you know and um when when people tell us they do believe me it's gratifying it's good to hear excellent
3: excellent do you guys have anything else we could probably go on for another hour or two yeah we could (laughs) Yeah. yeah no i could yeah I know everybody's got to get to bed at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I really appreciate your time and, and I, I can't thank you enough.
1: Oh, no problem. No problem. You guys take care, man. You, you too. Have a great night. All right. All right you too. Bye bye. Take, take care.
3: Thank you so much for listening to our show and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at thebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at com